This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegas. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So if you're tired of high cost and time consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at tegas.co forward slash value hive. That's tegas.co forward slash value hive. And as a personal anecdote, I use Tegas literally every single day. It's the first resource I use when I start researching uh, a new investment, and it's one of the last things I do uh, before I finish up rounding out my research, and I know you'll love it as much as I do. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org slash global dash investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global dash investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at Ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive. All right, Fergus, we met through a mutual friend on Twitter, a shot in the dark request to get you on the podcast, and it worked. And here we are. This is probably the earliest I've ever been awake for a podcast. It's 7 a.m. my time. Uh, but you're in Bali, so it's it's I think it's 8 p.m. or something over there. Um, we we. decided to do this podcast because you've got a really interesting background. Um, Your bread and butter is in post-bankruptcy situations, which um, I think are wildly fascinating. And it's an area that I don't really know that well. Um, And it just so happens that a lot of these interesting post-bankruptcy situations tended to be, you know, the oil and gas, the drillers, the miners, stuff that got blown out out of the last capital cycle trough. So I think we're going to have a great conversation about all of that. And um, to kind of start off, though, who who is you know who is Trader Ferg, and and uh, how did you end up um, you know investing in the way that you do, and what and what led you to um, investing in these situations? Well, first, thanks for having me on. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and yeah, it's an honor to be on. So I appreciate it. Um, I'm just a a Kiwi, I grew up on a farm in New Zealand, um, went to 
went to agricultural college there or university and decided it wasn't for me and ended up somehow getting um, getting into finance and getting um, finding a mentor that's kind of led me down the sort of trading investment path but um, which has led me to sort of quit my job uh, when I turned 30 I left the corporate world and going on seven years now um, I've been living in Bali um, and loving it so yeah that's a, a really quick overview <laughs> so what were you doing in the corporate world before you left so i was an asset manager i um i started off managing shopping centers so i started working for Woolworths, which if anyone knows is just a big supermarket chain um and they diversified all their sort of um all their shopping centers into a sort of a separate REIT and i sort of went across with that managing that and did that um, pretty much my whole time in Australia and so I didn't actually have a lot to do with more the um, sort of what I ended up doing that came as a result of being lucky enough to meet my mentor who I've been with for 10 years now he runs his own fund and was nice enough to take me under his wing and um, and mentored me um, yeah for years and years and years <laughs> So and and was mm -hmm. was this mentor? Did he specialize in in post bankruptcies, or how did how did that end up becoming kind of your style? So that was kind of a it evolved from that. So um, Brad, my mentor, his strategy is just seeking out the most hated sectors in the market. He loves nothing more than to find something that everyone won't touch, everything one believes is dead, and the. The sort of post bankruptcy sort of evolved from that with a lot of the whenever you go into one of these sectors there's always a lot of upside there's a lot of sort of asymmetry but the problem is you have to often have a lot of patience and sometimes you don't make it to the other side so you kind of get you you have a clear view on where the say the commodity because most of this is um, energy based that's where it kind of really dug in and formed a fundamental view there's there's nothing more annoying than having this sort of fundamental view, but the, the company goes bust on you along the way. And so the sort of going in post chapter 11, you often get cleaned up balance sheets. You go in sort of beside some of the more sophisticated investors that have had, they were often the sort of the, um, the debt holder, holders previously and they've um, had a sort of debt for equity swap as you're going and alongside them, which is kind of, Kind of an interesting setup for retail. Normally, you're just a cat and fodder for most, for most uh, <laughs> smarter money, so to say. And so, getting into it alongside them, and they're generally wanting to give the company some uh, sufficient runway um, to sort of make their money, make their money back. And so, it's um, been a great way to play play a view on the greater sort of outlook for commodities and sort of reduce the risk level because there's always everyone always loves to talk about sort of the multi-baggers but there's an awful lot of sort of hindsight or survivorship bias with that there's an awful lot that sort of go bust, bust along the way and so this is a way to kind of make sure you've got a, a wider margin of safety mm -hmm. and when you, you know, stumble across that across that mentor did you have any sort of trading experience or philosophy that was you know, kind of forming before that, or, you know, were you very new to the space and just said, you know, hey, like, teach me everything you know, and you kind of came in with a, a blank slate, basically? 
Ah, so I, I always loved trading because I tried everything. I decided early on that corporate world wasn't for me. I didn't like answering to people. Um, mm -hmm. Even though the job was, yeah, the job it was a great job. Like I had a corner office, a suit, and had a whole team, and but it was just it was miserable. And the idea of sort of doing that the rest of my life, like I often say, it's there's a lot of jobs out there where you learn how to do the job on year one, and then you sort of repeat. The process for the next 30, 30 years and that right. i just i wanted to i want a sort of profession where i can constantly learn and find it really intellectually rewarding and so i kind of tried a few different things i'm a terrible salesperson um i'm an introvert so i really struggled with anything where i had to sort of reach out and um do anything so i failed miserably at that um and then found my way into trading and it was um yeah, pretty stop start until I met Brad and then his style really clicked for me. I'm not not a particularly emotional person, so his idea of just coldly coldly looking at um businesses that are absolutely hated and yet you can see sort of starting to turn around just made perfect sense to me and um yeah, it just clicked and I think it was a good match for my personality and sort of emotional makeup. So if you were an introvert, did Brad reach out to you or how did that, how did that happen? <laughs> oh, we're, we're both um, from New Zealand off farms. And so I met him at a conference and then, yeah, it was just um, kind of, yeah, I guess that's why he took a liking to me. It saw, um, saw a sort of chance to help me in that way. And then from then on, um, yeah, it was, was a financial relationship until in the end I started working for him for a, um, a while so it kind of swapped from um well it still always has obviously been mentor but yeah me and that's been helping him as well with um some of his businesses the last few years there must be something in the new zealand water because the chandler brothers are like one of the most famous uh you know investing pair uh and they're 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 out of new zealand and they do pretty much the same thing or that or that was a strategy where they would go in buy bombed out hong kong real estate bombed out brazilian telcos um so I wonder if it's like this New Zealand personality type where like they're just better suited for bomb, you know, buying bombed out sectors. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's, I always found it interesting because it was always like sort of flying below the radar by the channelers. And well, no one's almost heard of the channelers. Like it's, um, they probably keep the lowest profile of, um, oh, most yeah. investors. Yeah. Which yeah. is same, similar to Brad, Brad, um, Brad sort of made his money and then retired sort of, well, he hasn't retired, he still works a lot, but he's on a sort of vineyard outside Melbourne and just likes the quiet life. And um, I think I'd be kind of similar here, apart from during COVID, I was so bored, I got on Twitter, started firing away, and then everything's kind of unfolded <laughs> from that to you know, have a bit more of a, a presence online, I guess, yeah. But I was quite, quite happy just doing my own thing. So maybe that's a Kiwi trait, just being quite happy grafting yeah. away in solitude <laughs> yeah i mean i it, it it's a it's it's a beautiful country so if you're gonna go and be solitude i mean that's that's the country to do it uh, but you mentioned your social media presence i found you uh by a uh, crux investor youtube video so before we dive kind of deeper into the philosophy and kind of examples of your analysis um 
you know, talk to us about that whole, you know, situation and your, your, your work with Crux and kind of what you do there with a lot of the uh, deep dive analysis. Like, for example, like I found you by watching the tin video um, that you made, which is, which is great. Yeah. So, um, got a, with Crux, I've just been, um, I've been enjoying putting a lot of work out on, um, on Twitter when I was just locked in the house during sort of the, the lockdown period and quarantine and, was it, trading can be awfully lonely. And so one of the luckiest things that happened to me is a few of my early threads went quite viral and I had some really smart people reach out and just want to chat, like a few hedge fund managers in New York. And now I like to sort of think that we're on a pretty friendly basis on WhatsApp, sort of sending messages back and forward. And I quickly realized like the power of like, oh, this is fantastic. Yeah, I kind of had always thought it was just trolls and. The comments was kind of where intelligence goes to die but um after like having some of these interactions i was like this is this is hugely valuable to kind of test my ideas not only for like touching base with smart people but also testing like um like market sentiment like just um like seeing if people or no one agrees with you and everyone sort of hates idea and i often found that quite interesting whereas everyone sort of loves um like you could you can use a million examples like sort of Kathy Woods even when she's losing money everyone still sort of loves her it's, it's just yeah I find I find this sort of behavioral side of it fascinating I was joking the other day that I I often log on and just check arcs like inflows so I just found it amazing that she still had positive inflows oh I know <laughs> sort of dusted 70 80 it's, it's like its own indicator in itself um and so yeah I Lost, lost my train of thought there. <laughs> okay. No, you're, you're, no, you're, you, you, you brought up a good point about um, using Twitter, using social media mm -hmm. to yeah. kind of red team and gauge sentiment, and I think that's important because a lot of people use Twitter or maybe use Twitter as a confirmation bias tool, where they say, "Hey, I've got this awesome idea, and I hope you guys agree, or I hope you guys enjoy. Yeah. Uh, please read, please like, and." if you get any sort of negative feedback or negative comments, it's easy to take that as a negative to the idea itself or to you as an analyst yeah. where, oh, like this idea sucks. Like maybe I suck as an analyst. Like maybe this is a terrible idea. But when you have the style that you do where you're investing in stuff that's hated, you're investing in stuff that's awful, um, you know, getting that negative feedback could actually be a positive signal, which is very counterintuitive. Um, but you know, if you if 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 you want to touch on that a little bit, because I think that's important. Because as we enter, you know, a world where everybody's connected and everybody wants to share ideas, a lot of people are looking for confirmation that their ideas are good. That you know, yes, this is a great business at a great price. Congratulations for finding it. Um, but it's not always the case, and that's definitely not always the way to make a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I think it was. Was it Charlie Munger that said in a year that even sort of destroyed one of your most loved ideas for a year wasted? And I, I've taken kind of pride in that. Of I can often feel very strongly about an idea, and then I've turned around. I've done it on Crux one uh, a few times where really felt strongly about an idea, and then I put my tail between my legs and gone back and said, "No, I've actually the more I've gone down this rabbit hole, I've decided I'm wrong." Um, and yeah, I'm changing changing my my view because you do never an audience you do run the risk of kind of like wetting, wetting yourself to an idea and there's nothing worse that's how you end up getting slaughtered and um yeah that's so going back to like 
yeah, from from Twitter, and then I started a um, a website where I put up some articles, and that was actually where one of the first uh, traderfirg.com was still up, and it's one of the first times I kind of ran through the idea of how to go through um, look for companies that were uh, heading into Chapter Eleven and sort of look for them to pop out the other side and what you mm-hmm. could expect and how they could be de-risked, and that came to the attention of Crux and um, a nice guy runs a family office um, and he reached out um, and interviewed me, um, Matt Gordon, and the rest is history from there. He says, would you like to to do these deep dives and start doing more interviews on the channel? And I've just loved it because coming back to me being an introvert again, I kind of knew I needed to reach out to people, but <laughs> to have a bit of incentive was actually hugely, hugely yeah. beneficial because I I'd say I'd do it, but I wouldn't do it, and then um, and also feeling kind of responsibility of putting putting my work out there it makes me like yeah. deep dive a lot more. Like I feel a, a lot of pressure that um, I'm pretty unemotional with my money, but um, I feel really bad if I screw something up um, and over um, sort of miss something that causes other people to so that that was it was kind of the right incentives all around for me to get involved and um yeah i'd loved it i'd loved the yeah the incentive to to produce more so that was kind of how i ended up doing what i'm doing and uh it's a few years into it now and yeah i've been loving it yeah i mean keep keep doing it i i get a ton (laughs) of value out of it and so um you know, like I said, I was researching 10 and just typed in 10 investment on YouTube and your face popped up and I said, okay, let me, let me check this out. Um, so let's, let's dive in into, you know, that strategy and kind of how you analyze a situation from, from A to Z. And so, um, if you want to go through like with an example, or if you just want to say, you know, first we can do kind of high level, like what do you look for? Um, and then where where in the cycle we can say of chapter 11 reorg, where do you want to enter? And then what are the things that you're looking for? Like we'll call them inflections before before you decide to put capital to work. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess the main, like this whole strategy came about because of how strong my view is on the energy space. And so yeah. I'm, not, I'm not going around doing random chapter 11 is just in whatever I see. <laughs> like I'm not just yeah. <laughs> trying to like pick up some yeah, random like sort of warehouse that's gone in or some other toy store. Airline. Like, none of, yeah, <laughs> no, nothing like that. No, this is this is essentially trying to get a very de-risked way to play a very high conviction view on where um, commodities and in particular energy is going. So if we're doing my portfolio now, I'm um, sort of 95% energy related yeah. plays and what is an energy is is tin, yeah. and so that's this is all this is all one sort of one one big sort of this was this was trying to work out how to get the most um, the largest margin of safety with the most upside intact because right. yeah that that was where this all came came from digging through the the sort of fundamentals of the energy side has been something I've been doing for years. Um, love sort of, it, j- it just made so much sense to me from the start with the fact that we were in a world sort of awash with liquidity. Everything was getting sort of fully priced or ridiculously priced. And yet the one area that um, people just couldn't invest capital was being chased away. So the, obviously the, the, 
ideology we have at the time, the ESG, the, um, just the absolute carb, capital starvation, which has seemed that this was the place that you wanted to be um, mm -hmm. for, for the longer term, and it would be the one area that would really outperform, also had the view that we were going into structural inflation for a long time. And so from there, it was just um, started, started the hunt of how can I position my portfolio where I can really size up positions and know that I've got runway for um, for a lot of these trends to turn around because a lot of a lot of this anyone that's kind of been in the likes of uranium you know that every year there's sort of a whole lot of bullish catalysts and then yet it always is kind of like the carrot in front of the donkey it's always next year next year next year and yeah. if you're in some of these mining sectors you just get your capital pillaged you get diluted you have all sorts of um, risks been in sort of bad jurisdictions. You have, um, it just, you can slowly see, and just the volatility chops you to pieces as well because there's no inherent cash flow. A lot of these guys are just um, standing around uh, saying how they're going to bring a mine um, and have yeah, no ability to, to, to really finance things. And so that's, that's what got me really involved in trying to, trying to kind of work out the way to um, to be able to have a concentrated portfolio in these sectors that would normally I'd be very uncomfortable doing. And yeah. so, so some examples, I guess, that helps to um, have some, like the most recent, obviously, the whole um, offshore service sector has gone through pretty much a bankruptcy cycle and in particular, the rigs and there you had a very firm view on oil and kind of view the entire um, offshore oil service sector as kind of a call option on oil and so when you can see this whole sector consolidating it just made a ton of sense to be there for when this turns around like you can just i've got a firm view on where sort of oil demand's going out um, for a long time based on developing market growth, just population growth alone in the developing countries is going to be mm -hmm. in the sort of somewhere in the 2 billion range by 2050 and then add in them increasing their living standards and that alone is just going to, um, it's going to keep us at least growing at sort of historic energy demand and the fact that we invest in nothing in the, in the, um, there's no capex flowing into the sector means that price is going to have to be the balancing factor and so when you then look at offshore which is roughly 45 percent of the oil majors proven reserves you understand that this is going to be a massive beneficiary of sort of plugging that gap in the future and so then it was a matter of just working out like how big a margin of safety can i get from some of these plays and I'll, I'll use Diamond Offshore because that, that was that was a really simple one. I did mm -hmm. um, I did a few videos on this. I did one before they were about to relist a few days, and then I did it directly after the relisting and just went through kind of a lot of this is like table napkin maths. I'm not anyone that thinks I'm constructing like 20 cell like Excel spreadsheets is not how this works. This is um, <laughs> just going through. Got, um, Going through and working out what sort of a drill ship um, or a semi sub is um, changing hands for in the market, and then seeing 
likes of Diamond get absolutely punished on the uh, relisting, working out that could pick this up for what two or three of its drill ships were trading for at the time. Um, and they've got you know, six drill ships, 200 management, and another six semi subs. Granted, two of them are kind of a scrap. Yeah. And wow, you, yeah, you've got a huge margin of safety. And then fast forward, what is now, there is a year or so, and it's um, it's doubled. And that's that's just how that's kind of my bread and butter of getting that nice margin of safety when you get in. Um, and also the um, a lot of these having the debt cleared up, so the the offshore um, the offshore rigs have, have wiped out about twenty billion of um, of debt through the last sort of two three years, and so that's it's, it's kind of really interesting when you consider it's all all that debt got used to finance hard assets, which you as a shareholder now get to benefit from the cash flow. And they've all been sort of written down. Um, it's kind of like referred to as kind of you're getting subsidized asymmetry, or mm-hmm. kind of refer to it as kind of a almost like a embodied or embedded energy. Like there's a lot of energy has gone into creating all those rigs, and I don't yep. think they'll be able to be built for anywhere near what they're carrying them on their books, or even in the peak of the cycle, I think the replacement cost is going to be a lot more. And so that's that gives you an absolute huge margin of safety and a lot of upside, but I don't, I don't model that. I'm just concentrating on the downside and yeah. makes me comfortable taking significant positions and, um, and then moving on to the, the next and just trying to forget I own it because a lot of these I think are going to be, um, it's not, it's not going to play out quickly because they're so hated. I've lost so many people, so much money. It, it, it's feeding into my mentor, Brad, it's like philosophy is kind of the more hated, the more spring you get. Like if um, people just look at like you like you've I don't know, farted in an elevator when you bring up the name, then you know you're onto something. They just want yeah. nothing to do with it. There's just a whole lot of um, bad memories and lost capital. And they don't even want to look at the sort of the cash flow that it might be chucking out. Like Peabody was a great example as well. That was um, hmm. One of my bigger wins, it's sort of an hour, hour and a half presentation on it, um, getting into it at starter 2021, and it was sort of $3, $4. Um, and it's, um, it's yeah, obviously run very hard from there. But it was, the thing that jumped out at me there was extremely tight float, big short position. And it was just the cash flow generation that you could come up with even pretty conservative numbers. And that, again, is kind of, coming back to this idea of subsidized asymmetry, like they they bought um, MacArthur back in, I think it was uh, 2011 for 5 billion, and then they wrote off a similar amount in their bankruptcy. So you've got this this uh, monster of mine that's probably probably this, um, so you're gonna knock out sort of 800 million and you kind of, you you wrote it off um, in the bankruptcy and yet you're gonna benefit from the, that cash flow. That's, I, I just, yeah, it just appeals to me that I find it kind of simple to conceptualize. And um, and I just do this again and again. It's all, all my largest positions are pretty much um, sort of a result of going through this process, getting in cheap, thinking mm-hmm. there's very little that I can see going wrong. Um, granted, Peabody was a lot dodgier. They just sort of threatened the second bankruptcy, but I think that was more to get the debt holders taken over haircut. 
Um, and yeah, that's that's kind of what um, what I enjoy digging through the weeds on these, and then um, and then sizing it up. Yeah, and I mean, I love I love the the phrase kind of subsidized asymmetry because um, the the kind of big idea there is you're 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 coming into these companies and you're buying these companies after all the heavy capex has already been spent building what will be or what are the cash flowing assets and so you get to benefit from the ownership of those assets without going through that period of spending a ton of money to 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 get them up and running um but every everything you say like about diamond offshore about peabody like peabody at three dollars i think it's at you know 26 or 27 now um there's this you know hindsight of looking back and saying like oh it was so obvious like these yeah. things seem so Very obvious true. right like valeris like post bankruptcy seems so obvious um yeah. but the problem is is like there was always even in the times where it was obvious there were always reasons not to own them and so when you go back and you look at diamond offshore or peabody what were you know kind of the reasons despite the fact that it seems so obvious that people still wouldn't buy them even if you know diamond was trading at you know call it like a third of replacement cost and peabody was trading at some crazy low price like what is it about the stocks or maybe this the 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 situations that still prevent people from kind of recognizing that and taking that plunge and buying well, i guess it's just looking in the revision mirror like the review mirror like if you do you can come up with some pretty dark dark sort of projections and it's 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 hard like I've, I've got this um i've got this slide i think it was from the peabody chart where it was like six months on and it was before peabody kind of started its run and after it was all um seeking alpha articles and it was all like why peabody's screwed like why you should never touch this why is this toxic waste and then six months on it was like why this is the new asymmetric play when it's already gone up like four times it's it's you, you gotta be you gotta be so comfortable with it um when like yeah you've got absolutely no one willing to agree even when i gave that presentation i remember with matt that was like um, are you sure you want to talk about this <laughs> <laughs> and um i actually yeah when, when i first left um when I first left my corporate job, I managed money for a few high net worth people, and the, um, the issue I had was they were um, there accounts where like the person just gives you control of the account, so they you have like a login, but they still have the master control. Yep. And yep. So I would do this sort of stuff because it was what I always found interesting. I could see the most upside, like I was getting into like European banks um, that were bombed out, and they were so uncomfortable they'd go and close my positions they say you can do anything but just don't do that please like i'm just really <laughs> uncomfortable here and i was like but that's my kind of edge that's how i <laughs> and um yeah I, I just felt that i ended up kind of babysitting them or it was mm. been um yeah it's it's definitely not not for everyone and there's also this sort of embarrassment factor as well of when you sort of size one of these up and it does go bad whenever there's a lot of um asymmetry on the table there is stuff that can certainly catch you up like even the likes of Valaris when you talk about it being just an absolute sitter in terms of um having having yeah, just so much asset so many assets on its balance sheet for yeah like cents on the dollar you still have the fact that they've haven't got very good coverage in case of a um an accident um 
most of them sort of sub-affiliates. So if they had a serious oil spill, they could really get cleaned up. And so you just have to accept, so similar to, I've got quite large holdings of um, a uranium company or two in Namibia, and um, you just accept that, yeah, there is a lot of a lot of risk, and that's why you need a decent amount of diversity to take mm-hmm. a substantial hit, even, even when you've done all the work and that you've got a large margin of safety, there's still um, a lot of, you still get punched in the face pretty heavily. And yeah. it always pays to stay pretty pretty humble because every time I've, I've kind of got this, over the years, every time I've um, kind of been excited about when I open my account balance or taken a screenshot, that's usually been the peak in my account balance for another year or two. Like my, just, just the fact that I'm feeling good about it was um, enough that I, should be extremely cautious and likewise mm-hmm. some of my best performers it was so gut-wrenching when i saw the orders being filled there's no way i could have put them on in the actual market like talking sort of march 2020 i was putting quite big orders at one particular company and i remember my cost base was um got cut in half and then got cut in half again then by the end of it it was, <laughs> it was just a sea of red and i remember just being absolutely sick to my stomach i was like oh this is yeah, this is, this it's like putting hard. putting limit orders in and praying mm-hmm. to God that you know if those ever get filled, it's like some nuclear apocalypse <laughs> that would happen. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, it was just yeah, a real liquidity crunch. Like inherently knowing that it made no sense at all, but the yeah, you can't help but keep that sort of emotional side of you just becoming a basket case. I, I always love um, anyone that thinks that always be cool under those sort of scenarios should read. Stanley Drunken Miller when he talks about the dot-com boom and he was like I um they were like what was your lesson he's like I knew I shouldn't do it I just became an emotional basket case you're like oh it's the best in, investor or trader and <laughs> and the world can can do that don't think so highly of yourself that you won't become an emotional basket case which yeah I've got rules, yeah that's around that as well yeah that's my that's my favorite story from 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 Drunken Miller because it's it's so brutally honest and the funny part is, is he's so good. He's such a great trader. Like he doesn't, he, he, he didn't have to share that story either, but he's yeah. so, you know, kind of humble and confident in, 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 in his abilities that, uh, you know, it makes any time I make an emotional decision, I'm like, okay, like I, this is this, you know, I'm not, you know, some type of basket case that, that, that can't be successful. Like the drug did it. And so if, <laughs> if, if he can yeah. survive it, then, then maybe I've got, a, I've got, I've got a sliver of a shot. So what are what are the uh, red flags? Obviously, there's tons of you know red flags and air quotes when you're dealing with these <clears throat> post bankruptcy situations. But let's walk through kind of some where you, you've you've got this thematic like okay, like I'm very bullish on energy over the you know next five to ten years. This is where I'm going to look for post bankruptcies. As you kind of peel the pages and you know go from A to Z on names. What are the red flags where if you see them, if you spot them, it's kind of, okay, I'm going to skip this company. Um, and then conversely, what are some things that you love to see? Like if like if a post-bankruptcy has one or two of these things, it gets you really excited. Yeah, so one of the biggest red flags um, pivoting, like when they decide that their business just doesn't work anymore. <laughs> we'll, like, we'll just fire sale our stranded assets and we'll, like, I call it like doing a BP. Like how mm-hmm. I think um, Bernard Learney is going to have overseen the biggest sort of capital destruction in history, like the way he's kind of fire, um, held a fire sale for a lot of 
BP's sort of oil assets and got into a lot of these um, renewable options and just bid silly numbers and now he's moaning about their returns. Oh, oh shit, you were, <laughs> you, were, you were winning auctions at silly prices um, for renewable assets that made no sense at all. So yep. yeah, the, the pivot or the, um, it's what's nice about being in sort of smaller companies that don't have of what a lot of the large energy companies have experienced like this kind of activists like the engine number one getting involved and sort of saying like you can't concentrate on your core business like how you how you get into zero carbon how you're going green like i i want to kind of avoid that i want them just to focus on their core business and keep keep um keep leaning out and running it um running it efficiently that said i've got some terrible management teams in my portfolio so got Valaris got Peabody like that granted Peabody's kind of cleaned itself up but they couldn't have run things much worse the last sort of year or two <laughs> and Valaris now is um yeah they're, they're having a shocker you can even hear some of the other um of the sort of the rigs management team sort of mocking them in the investment yeah. calls so yep. yeah it's when, when you've got that much value it's hard to screw it up, but it, it's always nice to see a kind of a complete plan out. I've got a rule. If I get screwed by a management team, I'll just move on. Uh, one, one recent example was that I've kind of broke that rule. I always break my rules. So I have solid rules and then I have exceptions. Mm -hmm. And uh, I find it, um, it makes sense as the likes of um, Cycling. So this is one where I actually wrote it into quasi-bankruptcy. It was kind of a restructuring, so I had long-term calls on it. Um, they they had a bad screw-up. They had a massive cost overrun on some of the offshore um, blew themselves up. Cleaned house management came out nearly sort of uh, net cash, and um, now that now they're looking pretty good. So it's one we kind of had to um, swallow, um, swallow a loss and then go again because the asymmetry is there. Um, Brad, Brad had a similar with Laris. He had um, his disposition of Laris and wrote it down into bankruptcy, and then bought it back exactly the same position size, and now it was up sort of three, four x. So hmm. it's um, so a lot of that is just understanding that it was there. You just didn't uh, the sort of payoff was there. You just um, have to stump up with the cash again, which is which is hard mentally. I really struggled with psychoanalysis. It's like a bastard. So don't want to look at this again. Not mm -hmm. seeing that it was all, um, it's just that emotional side that we we're just talking about. It's really hard. It's it's always easy to sort of sit back and talk about how how unemotional you'll be in certain occasions and damn hard to do it in reality. So yeah, it's, yeah. yeah it's always um, it's always easy like with the asset based valuations and like replacement costs to take that unemotional approach, but there's still something about like seeing your PL account go up and down. It's like, okay, you know what the asset value is, you know what the discount is, but for some reason watching that, you know, daily PL swing in your account completely screws up all of that emotional equilibrium. Yeah, I hold my thumb over my account balance when I'm going in to put on I, I try not to go into my accounts. So I got no no leverage. So through through hard times I can just not look at my account but if i want to go in and put positions and i've got cash yeah i hold my thumb over my account balance i just don't want that number messing with my head yep. I, I can yep. i can kind of guess where it is but i don't want to see the number <laughs> I can, and um that's something i learned from brad like i think um you just don't it, it's not helpful 
it's um if it prevents you from making a good decision you know that there's no you're not running like massive margin or futures that'll clean you out and you get margin calls and taken out like it's it's just volatility and yeah i yeah it's it's helping manage that sort of emotional side like starters don't log in your account if you don't have to and if you do go in then don't look at that number it's not it's not going to help you make the right decision it would be nice if there was like a feature on like brokerage accounts like you know interactive brokers or something where you could just say hey show me my cash balance show me my liquidity if i'm you know if you yeah. if, if, if you're close to margin or something but don't show me my actual balance like just show me the cash um because that would i mean that would that would save a lot of money that would save a lot of people a lot of money <laughs> yeah. Yeah, stop the, the monkey going wild in your head. Yeah. So what are the what are the what are the green flags then? If 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 a lot of red flags are kind of management mishaps and 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 pivots away from core businesses, what are those green flags where when you see them you want to double down and 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 really go after that company and really really try to understand it? Um so a lot of these companies really lean down um, coming into this sort of restructuring. So it's um, it's very rarely that something that someone that's going through restructuring will have like a lot of fat. So that's um, that's always always nice to know that you're not gonna you're generally not gonna see like crazy compensation packages or something like that. Like they've got they've not got got no grounds for it. Yeah. The um, the what I what I love to see is someone that is just still so hated, and yet it, you can already see the sort of the fundamentals turning. And just often, uh, to use one example at the moment, I know it's not a a um, no, it's not a chapter eleven, but it's Transocean, where yep. there's, there's still like a nineteen percent short float in it, and they're signing like mid to high four hundred day rates. I'm like, what are these? What are these shorts doing Hank? like there's just that that kind of <laughs> the they there's this kind of lag between the turnaround and people actually spotting the turnaround because they're still as i said before kind of looking in the revision mirror and not focusing on where this could be going and so i love that moment that i guess that inflection because probably my lesson that's been hardest learned is kind of getting into a lot of this stuff waiting for the inflection rather than having the inflection line up and then a pile and then which is um which kind of saves you a lot of um heartache just sort of riding volatility waiting for it to play out and so that's 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 kind of my my big my big learning over the last few years is just wait having having an airtight thesis and having real conviction in it but waiting for the opportunity to really load up just because mm -hmm. something's um i think it was brick rule that said just because something's um inevitable doesn't mean it's imminent so mm. you can um, you can know the supply demands gonna bite one day but doesn't mean it's now and you can get chopped to pieces um, yeah and sort of hang hang on to that thesis and um, and yeah have, have a lot of heartache um, well sort of pointing at the supply demand chart for years yeah you know? <laughs> so <laughs> speaking yep. of experience yeah <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's the danger I think with with a lot of these plays, whether it's energy or the metals and mining space, where you you can just kind of print out that supply demand imbalance. And you know, a lot of these companies like they know it, they put it on their investor decks, 
and they just and you can you can see it like hey here's the demand curve here's the supply curve and it's completely opposite and yeah. it's easy to kind of transfix on that and say oh therefore this has to work like yeah this this has to work and like you said it's not all like just because something is inevitable does not mean it's imminent and you know who knows what could happen just because the supply demand is what it is it doesn't mean the company's immune from you know its individual risks yeah like in this age of data as well i think we always put far too much trust in the sort of validity of some data like I, I had a um i'm a big fan of a guy called louis garv and he he highlighted a point that I found super interesting in a recent presentation. So he's got an office in Beijing. Now, arguably got some of the best intelligence of what's going on in China. He's saying throughout, um, well, for the last sort of years leading up to COVID, China was importing about $4 billion a month of commodities from Russia. And even when the lockdown um, kicked off and the Chinese construction collapsed, the imports went up to $11, 12000000000 billion a month. And I just found that fascinating that at a time when demand, like we know what happened in the West with um, sort of whether it's energy demand or just any, any commodity demand just fell through the floor. Here, China is really piling up the commodities. And so I think that should give anyone sort of a big pause if you're um, sort of, I've seen so many charts floating around about sort of um, warehouses being empty, sort of pointing to various sources. And I'm like, oh, that that alone would make me kind of question um, how quickly some of the stuff could inflect, and so yeah, I always keep that in the back of mind. That generally, if you think something's going to inflect in the next year, probably pretty better add another year or two onto it just to <laughs> <laughs> give yourself some some leeway. I've always found most of my investments, uh, most of the sort of the asymmetries kind of come in the sort of third year. It's always been my experience. I always kind of think I've timed it perfectly and then three years later I'm starting to get rewarded and anytime that it's quicker it's usually just pure luck yeah yeah I mean that's what that's what Peter Lynch said he said you know all of his best investments worked in like year seven or something which yeah. you know for people now that hold stocks on average like six months that's that's like in, <laughs> that's that's incomprehensible for most people but you mentioned the 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 data um you know the data insight there and just I think earlier this week, um, I saw like the exact like two completely different takes on oil inventories based mm -hmm. on like two different charts from I assume two different data sources, but like literally one was saying oil inventories are depleting, and then like <laughs> scrolled through Twitter, like two, five tweets later, it's like oil inventories are at their highest they've ever been. And it's like, how is there <laughs> yeah. this much like like, like, why is the dichotomy so strong? Like, the data should be the data, and it's and it's and it's kind of scary because, like, you can kind of craft a narrative you want, any narrative yeah. you want based on the data. Like, you can take any data point and have it fit a narrative that you have, whether that's you know long term bullish oil, bearish oil, um, you know, regardless. Like, you you know, you can pick your time frame and then just pick your data, and you've got your case. Yeah, yeah, it's. I've seen a lot of that. Like it's that's why I was kind of joking about sort of DCFs. Like I've seen they they can be tortured to produce whatever you want out of them. It's um, why I'm always sort of very distrusting of like big models. I just don't even yeah. Just show show me the basic assumptions because it kind of comes back to that table neck and mass. Is there's 
just one or two assumptions that the whole thing revolves around. And if yep. you've got them wrong, then the, your 20 tabs on Excel is all bullshit as well. It's all just bullshit feeding into bullshit. Yep. And um, I'd prefer to spend all my time trying to get some of those basic assumptions right or get as close to right as possible, give myself a, um, a good margin on them. And that's, that's, what, that's where my sort of mentors sort of go after the really hated stuff because that inherently puts you on the path to, to, um, to get that good margin because there's just, yeah, you're just getting, getting those shenanigans and sort of, yeah, six in a beer market. It's, um, yeah, few and far between. Sort of CEOs doing dumb stuff and, well, no, not really. They still, they still manage it, but it's, yeah, yeah, there's less of it, I guess. If you were to, like, let's say you didn't have this oil thematic, like this, this, this long-term <laughs> oil, or we'll, we'll call it commodities because you do spend, you know, time in metals and mining and tin and all that. Um, if you, yeah. if you didn't have that big kind of top-down look, bullish look on that space to then go and find these post chapter 11s or these, you know, most hated things, like how would you go about crafting, um, and, an inbound kind of deal flow to try to find these names? Would it be something like looking at the all-time lows list, looking at the 52-week lows list? Like, how would you craft that idea generation? Yeah, that's a great question. Inherently, you always have to reinvent yourself in training. Like, if you're, if you're going to do this, like, you can't, you can't think that you'll ever have one strategy that'll work for indefinitely. Like, the best investors are always... Um, always have to find a new edge. Like when I quit my job, I wasn't doing any of this. I was mainly um, doing like income strategies. I was sort of, I found a, a niche um, and, and did that for years and it worked beautifully. And then volatility just, I guess too many people got onto it and volatility got super low and it just made no sense anymore. And so I just sat on my hands in cash from the end of 2019. I was essentially lucky that um, we had sort of COVID and gave me some stuff to do with the cash which is inherently in itself is massively lucky. I think knowing the role that luck plays in all your success as well as um, yeah, needs to be acknowledged. Yeah, it's, um, I feel, yeah, as soon as you start sort of equating, forget who it was, I think it was Annie Duke with her book, as soon as you start sort of equating um, all your good out outcomes with skill and all your bad outcomes with luck, you're, <laughs> you're in trouble. You're done. And so, <laughs> yeah, you're done. And so, yeah, understanding, like just focusing on the on the process, and um, it is is so important. So, yeah, I, I think some some strategies that I've found will have worked very well over time, and I think they hopefully always will. Is just arbitraging sort of human behaviour. So, hmm. knowing um, there's some in that like the standard sort of bottom crawling chart and reading into why is this um why is this sort of crawling along the bottom of the chart why why is this so bombed out is this yep. is this business necessary breakouts are a fantastic way to trade i've um traded a lot of sort of just breakouts in my time just seeing something that's gone nowhere for a long time and then just jumped up essentially it's usually insiders or people that have got a deep knowledge of the industry trying to position themselves early. So looking for sort of, um, yeah, you've got all the scanners that you can look for, um, breakouts, arbitraging volatility, which is what I did. Like you've, you've always got, um, 
sort of a, a sort of margin you can get from, uh, of course, the CBOE. I've got this chart that shows they backtested all the way back to 1986, and the best performing um, strategy was selling calls. I was 20% out of the money, and um, and if you that was essentially what I based my strategy around. I was just using a lot more um, leverage and found sort of longer dated um, rather than having just to buy the underlying. I found a way to sort of um, buy it with options, and so that kind of leveraged up the whole the whole thing. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's it's hard to stake anything that will always be there because it won't be if. If there was anything that was always there, um, people would arbitrage it away, so it wouldn't exist for long. Kind of like this whole, this whole sort of chapter eleven thing. This is just, this is just at a stage of inflection, and we'll be in another year, and all these yep. things will have headed higher, and there's no one that will be able to go bankrupt because there'll be so much money flowing into the sector that'll kind of paper it over it all again. So this is just one point in time when the strategy makes a ton of sense, and um, and then have to move on and. Yeah, it's always the hardest thing is to say what will you then fold capital into when you become uncomfortable with some of the stuff yeah. you're in. And that's, yeah. like I've often said, I'll fold the likes of uranium, which is extremely boom-bust. I could see a scenario which I would fold it into coal because coal is so hated. I don't see it getting, um, getting institutional capital, kind of like the, the tobacco trade. They'll just be um, grinding along, handing out, fat dividends and buybacks and you'll grind higher with that even though it will never really get um, get some a multiple read rates. Uh, I was yeah, I was going over Peabody they just seen um, with with their current um, a lot of their contracts um, they just had locked in silly prices last year for a lot mm. of their um, thermal with that rolling off they'll be absolutely pumping out um, cash flow this year and um, and it'll just get silly to point there'll be I think they're already sort of a, more than a third cash and at by halfway through the year that should be sort of 50% cash and by the end of the year yeah you just keep like at what point will that re-rate or um, it's it's a nice problem to have essentially yeah yeah I just mean at one point like they could return their entire share pricing in a special dividend to, to shareholders. Um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I think I think what's important too, and you and you and you mentioned this is knowing when to 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 get off the ride, basically, or knowing, you know, yeah. knowing when not 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 to overstay your welcome. And that's not to say, you know, like this ride, right? Like in commodities could last, you know, for the next decade plus. And so you know, I don't want people to think that you know this ride is some some short term thing. Like the ride could be a decade, and it could it could be the only ride that you need to make life changing money. And that's that's kind of the other important thing too is maybe having you know getting a getting a thematic right once if you can get it right in size and if you can hold that might be the only one that you need to make truly life changing money. Um, but knowing when to get off when you should. Um, because you don't want to ride, obviously you don't want to, you don't want to ride the down, the down cycle. Um, and so I think, I think that's important too, is, is, is recognizing like, okay, you know, I've dedicated the last decade to, to, to this space. I have to have the emotional detachment to say it's done its course. Like I can move on to something else, which is like really difficult. 
I think you need a plan. Yeah, I'm, I'm an absolute stickler on this. It was, it was one of my most popular articles I ever wrote was I labeled it uh, the monkey trap because it was like mm-hmm. the idea that it's a way you can trap monkeys uh, in Africa is they just get a um, get like a coconut and you just have a, a fist-sized hole in the coconut and then you tie the coconut to a tree and then you just put a few um, a few nuts in the coconut and the monkey comes along, sticks its hand in, its hand just fits through the hole but once it grabs the nuts, it can't fit its hand out through the hole and it sees the hunter coming but it refuses to drop the nuts so it gets caught by the hunter. And so I thought that was a fantastic analogy for being unwilling to leave any games on the table will like doom you to ride down the other side. So I kind of, for every, for every commodity I'm in, I'm trying to create a written plan that I'll stick to for how to exit. And yeah. it's all based around scaling. So there'll be no binary decisions. There'll be no, I'm selling completely out of uranium on this day because I saw yeah. this. It'll be in little increments. Um, and it's split half between behavioral and half between um, just uh, stuff I will see in the uranium market, like an example is like sort of spot completely overshooting term by sort of 20, 30%, and that'll probably slice off 5%. Um, behavioral ones, it's like if you, you look over and the taxi drivers ask you what your favorite uranium stock, then that's probably <laughs> slice off 10, 20. <laughs> like there's, there's just like, yeah, someone mentioned that you mentioned it to your mum rings you up and say, didn't you mention uranium once? Like, yeah, should be another slab off. And it's just this whole, this whole idea of slowly um, taking money off the table and just to kind of even, it's kind of important even to have a little bit still on, maybe when you completely ride it to the top, we're funny as humans, like even if you had sort of five to 10% of your position and you take it right to the top and you'll pat yourself on your back and you'll feel good. But as long as you've taken the vast majority off, and also had something to sort of roll it into that makes sense because that's mm-hmm. no one ever does the maths on sort of like the opportunity cost. Like if you can roll it into something that's going to grind higher as well, there's a point at which it kind of um, like my mentors. Yeah, he's made some big shifts where he just goes between sectors where he thinks one sector's um, the asymmetry's gone, it's had its run, and then he sees um, far more in another sector moves on. Um, yeah, having, having an exit plan, I think, is the most important. Otherwise, you kind of doom yourself to the mm-hmm. kind of the cults, the likes of like Tesla, where there'll be, there'll be a whole lot of people that were millionaires on paper and then they'll ride it all the way back down. Crypto is the same, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone will have a story of some some massive figure that they had at some point in time, but they could never realize any of it. And of course, no one can. The, the majority of them could never realize it because there just wouldn't be liquidity for them to get out (laughs) yeah there's no market um yeah (laughs) no i mean you mentioned you mentioned a great a great point about kind of scaling in and scaling out or i'm sorry scaling out and it leads me to you know questions about portfolio construction kind of creating that portfolio before you you know scale scale positions out so how does portfolio construction work for you i mean you've mentioned concentration quite a few times um, so what 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 does that look like in terms of number of positions, average position size, and then do you buy all at once, or do you like what you do when you sell? Like, do you scale in over time to reach some sort of target allocation? Yeah, yeah. So it's very similar. I do scale in slowly. Um, I've always tried to kind of chop my portfolio up with the idea of some 
performance and versification, but that's a bit of a joke now since I just have all energy. Might as well be <laughs> one big energy position, honestly. So I'm not going to pretend I'm diversified in any way. Tin's about the only thing that moves to its own feet. Um, I usually have sort of 20, 20 ish, maybe 30 positions max. Um, okay. Position size and something I'm always trying to optimize. I think I usually my sort of standard position is. Um, Start start with a sort of two three percent, and then if I have real conviction, I might scale it up to five of time. Usually, just setting um, limit orders in, um, or a 10 20 percent below the market. Um, just understanding, hopefully, volatility will be my friend and um, give me a lower cost base. Very very rarely, if I see sort of a real liquidity crunch, kind of like March, I will push a 10 percent position. But that's that's very rare. Normally, yeah. yeah, the max of most of my positions at cost is five percent. Really, let it go above that, um, and yeah, that's been sort of learned the hard way by um, yeah pushing positions too too much. And I'm even badly now because yeah, portfolio can get awfully out of whack by positions um, growing, and you having more upside. Yet it's sort of yeah, you having a view of more upside with the company and yet it's kind of taking a massive chunk of your portfolio and it doesn't help you sleep at night. So yeah, yeah, I kind of battle with this a lot. <laughs> yeah. I Portfolio positioning is something that I've, I've thought about a lot too. And like up until probably this year, a lot of investors got rewarded by taking highly, highly concentrated bets, like three to five positions. And they were glorified on Twitter for their conviction and my stance on conviction is that in a in a way it's probably the most overrated thing you can have in investing um and i'm also thinking about position size where you've got guys like walter schloss that you know back back when he was managing money and he's got one of the best track records out there he had 100 positions at a time over 100 positions and you know, I don't, I don't know if that's the right answer. I don't know if three to five is, 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 is the right answer. But the more I think about it, and if you, if you are investing in these bombed out spaces and these hated spaces, I do think a greater position size or a greater, um, you know, number of positions is probably the best bet, and that might be something around 20, 20 to thirty. Um, that way, if any one or any, you know, maybe five or ten go bankrupt. Um, you can still survive that and have your winners kind of ride out. Um, I just think a lot of investors have taken what's worked over the last three years in terms of position sizing and number of positions, and they're kind of porting that over to this energy space and this super cycle where they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to have five positions. It's going to be Valeris, Rig, Tidewater, and that's it. And it's like, man, I don't know if that's... <laughs> I don't know if I don't know, you know, if that's if that's the right tool for the job, but um, you know, it's 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 just kind of this this thing that I go back and forth on and I haven't found, you know, the optimal answer either. there's this great article called um Even God Would Get Fired as an active manager. And it's this idea that even if you're omnipotent, I think it's sort of describe it, that you could see forward um I believe it's two years, it might even be five years, and you could pick the perfect portfolio. He'd be still be fired by all his investors because he'd run too high volatility, and it's the same idea that 
often you can put people in the right positions, but they'll be their own worst enemy because they can't handle the inherent volatility with riding those positions. And so they'll, um, yeah, they'll get chucked off. And also I want to say, yeah, it's, it's a great point that more diversity obviously dampens volatility, but at the same time, there's a point at which like you can damage your returns by having um, too many positions and yeah. no position can really, like, there's an opportunity cost to that. Like say, picking something that is a 1% position and is a 10-bagger, that's still only a 10% addition to the port. Like that really hasn't moved the needle. And mm-hmm. that's where I kind of arrive at that sort of three, four percent. Like I can stomach a three, four percent loss if I really screw up and it cleans me yep. out. And yet if that three percent position is a 10 bag, that's still added a third to my portfolio. That's still moved the needle. And that's right. I think that's the way I think about it is how do I balance those two? Because if you kind of think about it on either extremes that spectrum, then you do yourself a disservice. Yeah. Cause Yeah. And it's almost yeah. reverse engineering what you want, like like what the what the end goal would be like what you would be satisfied with um in terms of like a proportion so if you only have a one percent position like are you satisfied if this thing goes five to ten x like are you satisfied with a five percent or ten percent you know gain in your in your net worth or your portfolio and if you're not then that's when you adjust the position size and then accordingly if you're comfortable with the added risk um but i think i mean for 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 people that might you know if they're if they're struggling with like how to figure out position sizing maybe just trying both and like you know having like a small test account or something where you try having 20 to 30 positions then you have you know you take that and then you could take what you consider your you know three or five best and try that same thing in another small test account you know with just those positions and kind of see which ones you can tolerate see which ones you find more interesting because i think most people would be better off i think with more positions than 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 they assume yeah it would definitely help them manage their sort of yeah not too dumb stuff yeah not get shaken out by volatility <laughs> yeah yeah no i mean because like it's you just you just saw so many people get patted on the back for five positions and they were all the same bet um and when when that cycle turns it's it's tough so but you don't you don't get the street cred of 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 conviction on Twitter if you have more than like eight positions in your portfolio. I think <laughs> it was just survivorship bias, isn't it? It's just yeah, you won't hear from the other sort of yep. yeah, the other ninety five percent that had that strategy and blew themselves up. Would been five percent that just timed it just right. Had, yep. Yeah, we're aggressive at the right time and managed to ride it through. Yeah, uh, so I love doing that. With, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say with with Amazon. The amount of people that say, "If only I bought Amazon at the IPO," like I've, I've done the exercise where you're like, "What happens if you put ten grand into Amazon the IPO?" I can tell you, it's the most gut wrenching exercise. <laughs> you think, you think you go up to like, it's like one point one million, and then you draw it back down to like thirty grand, and then you go back up to like six hundred grand, and you draw it back down to like two hundred. Like it's, it's the most horrendous like numbers. If that was actually in your account, you'd have a mental breakdown. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had it's 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 funny you mentioned that I had I was watching um the Steve Jobs uh document or I'm sorry not documentary the the movie like docu movie with uh, Michael Fassbender and as I was watching I'm like I had I had the same question I'm like so many people look back and like oh if only I would have invested in Apple at the IPO or at you know 
when you know when it when it when it founded and i'm like if you watch that movie there's almost a zero percent chance that you hold the entire time like yeah. like if you think about it, like the stock gets crushed the founder of the business gets fired by his own board of directors come it starts a competitor that directly competes with apple and then comes back and it's like how do you like you can't justify holding like no one would and it's and it's it's so funny like i i i, I always laugh at that like i think i think i tweeted that and i'm like you know all this happened at apple and then if you look at their chart like if you just do you know if you do a monthly chart of going back to you know their ipo i think it was like 87 maybe or something but um and you do the drawdowns it's like 60 70 40 80 yeah. <laughs> it's like, there's no way you're holding yeah yeah you'll be inhuman to yeah manage that sort of volatility so what is your day-to-day -day look like in bali i know the 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 market hours are probably whack for you i think it's like what 10 or 13 hours ahead bali is from eastern time so how like what is what is the day in the life of 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 ferg in terms of research and how much you allocate to looking for ideas versus kind of brushing up on what you already know um well, it's a bit different at the moment because i've got a, a newborn so that's, that's right that's right Congrats. the routine that's why i'm a bit slow tonight but sleep deprived so sorry the, the brain's sort of yeah got the loading symbol sometimes i'm trying to think about <laughs> on yeah three four hours of sleep a night lately um but yeah the the routine at the moment is i try and get up around five to give me a break um and take hugo for a cruise around the neighborhood we walk, walk down to the beach go to a cafe when it opens so normally i'm listening to podcasts or audiobooks or um if he's unlucky enough for him to be fast asleep then i pull out the laptop and uh, read a few articles or yeah just catch up um on some reading that way uh from there usually get back to the house um and drop him off to mia who's woken up and get to brazilian jiu-jitsu i'm an absolute addict on that I, are you a, are you a black belt no no I'm not black belt. yeah no <laughs> one day and another another few years um but yeah, I love that. Get get all my sort of um, get my exercise in and get my sort of energy out of the system, and then come back and generally start working and work um, right through till dinner. Um, and yeah, if any any trading I do is yeah, late at night or early in the morning, but very rarely I'm um, yeah I'm not very active anymore. I still do a bit of income stuff, but it's pretty really it's more just seen it as an opportunity i jump on otherwise it's kind of um just researching the next sort of big thing that i want to get involved in and yeah that that's that's my general day it's um what works for me and i um love it because i can do exactly what i want like i haven't really got anyone telling me this needs to be done or that needs to be done it's just at my own pace and if i want to go and hang out with my son or go for a wander or go to a cafe in the afternoon yeah can do it so yeah are you i mean are you doing a lot of like buy and sell decisions because it seems like you know you 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 take these longer term views you know kind of a three to five year horizon and a lot of a yeah. lot of limit orders and so is most of your time just kind of studying and reading and learning maybe trying to find that next 
real hated bombed out space or just kind of making, you know, keeping tabs on, you know, the current thematic and making sure that the thesis is still working. A lot of it's just fine tuning, like, uh, um, like decisions that made recently is like trimming other cold positions for one that I think is more likely to, um, I just like to set up better this year with offshore. It's been, um, second is going to be more of a sort of a recovery in the semi subs. So looking to lighten up exposure with jack ups and really double down on a few names that have, um, drill ships that heading for utilization and then um day rates are taken off and then semi subs that they're coming off a really low utilization so i can see some real talk there so it's always just trying to trying to find those areas i can um can kind of add value to the portfolio without just kind of over trading i've i've learned from sort of experience most of the time you're just over trading and you're just doing dumb stuff so i try not to mm-hmm. touch it very much unless i've um think i do have an angle that will be useful and yeah the rest of the time it's it's um just digging deeper and wondering what's next and is there a is there a better sort of payoff i've got this, like ideal like a hurdle rate where i i go through my whole portfolio and it's like everything earning its place like my hurdle rate for a long time it might even be again now was just physical uranium so just um just sort of straight i can see like the incentive price is is sort of an easy double and so does everything in my portfolio kind of um, meet or above that hurdle rate hmm. for from there it was um, Whitehaven um, for a while um, and that was just yeah I can see how all the dumb sort of energy policy around the world that coal wasn't going to be the break the glass and the savior and then that kind of has um, has largely sort of ran its well it's I still think the outlook for that's fantastic moving forward it's just going to have a rough time the one pretends we kind of solved the energy crisis and it was just down to russia not down to relying on sort of low energy density mm-hmm. forms that are going to bite us in the ass moving forward um yeah so it's just a, a lot of tweaking i guess there's not there's not very little turnover and um and yeah very rarely i'm changing stuff now i could see yeah, the turnover is going to get lower and lower. So I just don't see that many, um, many other sectors really now that I'm uranium, uh, coal, and offshore. You can see it just tweaking, and that'll be the majority I'll kind of carry forward. Yeah. Now, when you go to kind of rank your your holdings based on some hurdle rate, you know, whatever, whatever that whatever that hurdle is, do you kind of rank them? Um, you know, like from from highest hurdle to lowest hurdle, and then you're always trying to recycle maybe those those, those lower hurdles. Um, and just kind of a way to frame it is, you know, if you're looking for call it, you know, three to five x in three to five years or something like that. Um, you know, do you start at like, okay, this one's got three hundred percent upside, this one's got only one hundred fifty, this one's got one hundred twenty, and then if you find something that's you know that's higher than what your lowest upside is and in 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 one of your names like that kind of can slot in to your portfolio is that is that kind of how you do it yeah yeah more or less like it's always it's always trimming around the margins if something just doesn't have the equivalent i'll start trimming it say it's it's very rarely like binary decisions i very rarely just say like completely chop that i'll just i'll just take um take a quarter off that and add um add a quarter so that example, I've been doing that quite a bit recently with um, offshore. Just um, chop away at some of the 
the guys I no longer think have this the same upside as like been sizing up more the the transocean the Saipan just out of restructuring like those are I think those have more asymmetry and I like that more whereas if, um kind of unhappy with the likes of like Valaris management they're just pissing me off now and so I just <laughs> yeah trying yeah. away <laughs> that position is is one for the example at the moment yeah and so just it's yeah it's fine-tuning no no mm-hmm. really big changes yeah I mean I like I like the idea again you've you've you, you've mentioned this a couple times it's just the idea of capital velocity is taking capital out of things that are maybe have run its course from a risk reward perspective and plowing that into stuff that's gearing up ready to go kind of at the at the beginning of that of that upside potential um and the more you can cycle that the more you can increase the velocity of your capital like what that does for compounding if you're right you know on kind of those on kind of you know switching capital it's 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 pretty phenomenal because like you said the opportunity cost and the time cost of your capital um the more you can quickly put that into stuff that's working is just it, it gets it gets kind of wild yeah, because it's, it's just they always have that chat with Brad. I think Brad. Um, there, there was a time when I like really enjoyed like intellectualizing strategies, and Brad had asked me to pull up my my PNL on my account, and I was like some of the stuff I was just like absolutely loved. It was making none of the money, and the ones that I just found boring and monotonous, and I was doing this sort of stuff was where I made all my money, and I was like. Yep. Like hang on to my other strategy. I was like, no, no, I'll fight change it. I'll make it. No, he's like, get rid of it. He's <laughs> fantastic for that. Yeah, similar with like kind of macro talk. Up in his eyes, will just glaze over, and he was like, "How's that going to help me make money? Are you just like saying this to sound smart?" I'm like, yeah, I guess. Like, oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. good. Yeah, every everybody needs that 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 mentor to help them focus on what actually matters. Because there's yeah. a lot of pontificating out there on Twitter, um, trying to sound really smart. But at the end of the day, it's like, what are the one to two things that matter most? Can you get them right? If you get them wrong, then the idea is not going to work out. Yeah, there's a lot of like just intellectualizing, like talking about the US hegemony and when will it, like it, it doesn't matter on any time frame that for your capital really. Like it's there's so much stuff that um, there's big debates over and it. I think it's just people trying to win brownie points for their followers. I don't think it, yeah, they'll make any money off it in any, any yeah. certain time frame. Yeah. Well, Ferg, this has been awesome, man. I don't want to keep you too late because I know it's late over there. You got to get the precious sleep that you can these days. Um, I've got a couple closing questions. First one is where can people go to learn more about you? Uh, so I'm um, getting more active again on Twitter. So that's just nice. Underscore. I just started a Substack, which is sent out a weekly email with interesting articles and podcasts and um, tweet and something I'm seeing in the markets. And also on Crux, I've got a um, a regular show where I um, say what I'm doing with my portfolio and interview people I find interesting. And so that's that's the places I'm online. Yeah, I would say definitely go check you out on Crux. That is that's a good that's a that's a great tool. Um, and then final final question: If you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? So this is a bit boring, but it'd be my parents. I saw a chart the other day that kind of made me sad. It was um, after you turn eighteen, you spend ninety percent of the time that you're ever going to spend with your parents, and 
just becoming a father now myself and like realize just how, how much effort and how much you put it in put into your child and then yeah the fact that kind of achieved all this freedom and want to allocate far more of it to them moving forward because otherwise like yeah what what is the point of all this if you can't give more time to them so yeah that was yeah that would be my answer to that just spend more time with them yeah that, that i don't know if you've seen that graphic on twitter where it's like the dad bringing home the newborn and then it's like a different shot of the life and like the son eventually turns into like the older man that's like walking his dad that's now like in a cane like and then it's just like the last picture is like the son that's older in front of his dad's grave stone and i'm like man that hits hard <laughs> that is brutal <laughs> did not want to see that this morning <laughs> i just saw a chat yeah yep well ferg this has been awesome man best of luck to you this year um I'll continue to watch your videos. You've been extremely valuable um, in my efforts to learn about mining metals and the commodity space in general. So um, you've helped me level up in a lot of ways there. So please keep up the good work. It was great to connect. And um, you know, maybe one day I'll come visit you in Bali. That'd be that'd be pretty fun. We'll 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 do some jujitsu. <laughs> I'd love that. Yeah, no, you're always welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on. Really enjoyed this.